everybody for coming back. This is our final panel of the day. We have had a lot of wonderful discussion about Justice Thomas's jurisprudence, and I am so excited about this panel. We have four of the top Supreme Court advocates um, here joining us today. So a lot of knowledge talking about advocacy in the Thomas era court. And so what we're going to do is start with just brief sort of statements or anecdotes from the panelists. Then we'll have a brief time of discussion at the end, open up for audience questions. So be thinking about what you, if you have a chance to ask the great Paul Clement, Noel, Jeff Wall, Lisa Blatt, a question, what is it going to be? This is your opportunity. Um, so we're very excited to jump in and get started. So we're going to hear first from uh, the Honorable Noel Francisco, who is the most recent um, confirm, Senate confirmed Solicitor General, served in that office from 2017 to 2020. He is now back at Jones Day, where he heads the D.C. office, and he's served there as a partner for a number of years and argued a number of Supreme Court cases in private practice, as well as during his time at DOJ. He also served previously in the government from 2001 to 2003 um, in the Office of Counsel to President George W. Bush, and then from 2003 to 2005 as a Deputy Assistant Attorney General in the U.S. Department of Justice Office of Legal Counsel. And we'll then hear from the Honorable Paul Clement, um, the 43rd Solicitor General of the United States. He is a partner currently in Kirkland and Ellis. Um, he, in addition to serving as confirmed Solicitor General, was the acting Solicitor General for nearly a year, Principal Deputy Solicitor General for over three years, and has argued more than 100 cases before the U.S. Supreme Court. Um, he clerked for Judge Silberman, who we're going to have with us later this evening, and for Associate Justice Antonin Scalia. And I should have mentioned that Noel clerked for uh, Judge Ludig and Justice Scalia. And then we'll hear from Lisa Blatt, um, who is the partner and head of the... Um, head of the Supreme Court and Appellate Practice Group at Williams and Connolly, former assistant to the Solicitor General of the United States. Lisa has argued 41 cases before the U.S. Supreme Court, prevailing in 37 of those. The National Law Journal's called her a visionary, one of the 100 most influential lawyers in America, and she was selected as one of the top 10 women in litigation in the United States by Benchmark Litigation in 2020 and 2021. And she's known for strong command of the case law, and the, the, her, the way that she presents a case has been called a work of art. And we We'll see um, her dynamism as we move through the panel discussion. Okay, and then we've got Jeff Wall, who is a partner and head of the Supreme Court Appellate Practice Group of Sullivan Cromwell, forming at, former acting Solicitor General of the United States. Um, he served in that role, I believe, twice during the uh, Trump administration. He's argued 30 cases in the Supreme Court. Um, and he um, also served as principal deputy in the Office of Solicitor General for four years. Um, and he um, served prior to that as an assistant to the SG from 2008 to 2013 during both the Bush and the Obama administrations. He clerked for Judge Wilkinson of the Fourth Circuit and for Justice Thomas um, and has taught courses in law school and administrative law and federal jurisdiction. So with that, we will dive right in, handing things off to Noel. Thanks, Jen, and, and it's a real honor to be on this panel with uh, my close friends here and some of the best advocates I've, I've ever seen argue before the court. Uh, just in thinking about you know how I would touch upon you know, the Justice Thomas and oral arguments under Justice Thomas, it brought to mind um, when I was in the Bush administration, the White House Counsel's Office, shortly after September 11th, the president gave an address to Congress, and we were all watching it on television in the old executive office building. And we saw that as the president made his way down towards the dais, um, he stopped and Justice Thomas whispered something into his ear. 
And we saw them have, have an exchange, and then he went on to give his speech. And so we were also curious. So the next day we were all asking, what, what did Justice Thomas say to you? And what we heard back uh, was that Justice Thomas uh, whispered into his ear, ride high in the saddle. And to me, that kind of epitomizes what, uh, you know, how Justice Thomas has carried himself on the court over these years. Um, you know, he, he rides high in the saddle. He's resolute. He's confident in his positions, no matter how controversial the case. He carries himself uh, with, with the confidence that, that he knows he's right. And every one of us has had an opportunity and challenge to go into court on very difficult, very high profile, and very hot button questions. And I know that when, when I go into cases like that, I, I remind myself of that saying, ride high in the saddle, because you're going to be catching fire. And the only way to really project your case uh, persuasively is to project it confidently and, and resolutely. Uh, no matter how hard they're coming after you, you have to ride high in the saddle in those kinds of arguments. And so that, that, that's one of the, one of my great memories of Justice Thomas throughout history that has actually had an impact on how I think I go about arguing cases. Sure. So I, I too am delighted to be here um, and celebrate uh, Justice Thomas's great legacy on the court. Um, you know, in, in all fairness, until very recently, um, questions at oral argument were not the epitome of Justice Thomas's <laughs> legacy on the Supreme Court. And in you know, he, he was his approach to questions at oral argument was marked uh, by I think what I would describe as extreme parsimony. Um, for the first few terms in the court, he did ask questions roughly about once a term, um, and then he went through a 10-year period where, for reasons unknown certainly to me, he did not ask a question, um, and things have really changed with a new format. But I, I just want to make three quick points, as advocates sometimes do. Um, the first is Justice Thomas, although he didn't ask a lot of questions, could ask some of the most impactful questions uh, imaginable. And the example that always has stuck in my mind is the argument involving a Virginia statute about cross-burning, Virginia against black. And this is a case where for the first 20 minutes of the argument, um, it proceeded as a typical First Amendment argument, where all of the other justices were competing with each other to see who could come up with the most outlandish hypothetical that sort of got away from the heart of the case. So, you know, Crosses being burned with nobody seeing them, crosses being burned in the desert, um, lots of crazy hypotheticals, and uh, no real appreciation for the countervailing interest in the case. And this went on for the entirety of Virginia's argument in defense of the statute. And then Michael Dreeben got up for the United States also supporting the statute, and he started kind of in the same vein, and it was a very kind of pro-First Amendment argument um, in that way without really a countervailing interest. And then things completely changed because Justice Thomas uh, interrupted, and I'm going to sort of uh, go with the, the transcript here, and said, Mr. Dreeben, aren't you understating the effects of burning a cross? And, uh, and, and Mr. Dreeben sort of responds, and then Justice Thomas was just getting going. Um, and he continued, now it's my understanding that we had almost 100 years of lynching and activity in the South by the Knights of Camellia and the Ku Klux Klan, and this was a reign of terror, and the cross was a symbol of that reign of terror. Was, isn't that significantly greater than intimidation or a threat? 
Uh, Mr. Dreeben being very lawyerly, he's a great lawyer. Well, I think they're co coextensive, Justice Tom. Well, my fear is, Mr. Dreeben, that you're actually understating the symbolism of the effect of the cross, the burning cross. I indicated, I think, in the Ohio case that the cross was not a religious symbol and that it was intended to have a virulent effect. And I think that what you're attempting to do is to fit this into our jurisprudence rather than stating more clearly that what the cross was intended to accomplish, and indeed, it's unlike any other symbol in our society. And it completely changed the rest of the argument. Didn't change the court's ultimate outcome. Justice Thomas wrote his own separate dissent that would have given Virginia even more authority to prohibit cross-burning than the majority did. But I don't think I've ever seen an interjection in an argument that had a more dramatic effect on the course of the argument. So whatever his reasons for not asking more questions, it wasn't because the man didn't know how to ask a question that could completely change uh, the argument. The second thing I want to just convey is what made this a little bit frustrating, I have to say, as an advocate, was that Justice Thomas combined this parsimony about asking questions with this incredibly distinct jurisprudence. And so if he was just the median justice and he didn't ask questions, like, ah, would it really matter? I mean, you know, just vote like any other justice. But of course, he has this incredible vision, this distinct jurisprudence, and sometimes you were just begging him to ask a question about his jurisprudence so you could engage with it. I will confess that in a couple of arguments, I actually tried to bait him. Um, I, I tried to say, you know, as Justice Thomas said in his separate concurrence, looking right at nothing. I got nothing. I got nothing. Um, but in one case, I did get the last laugh. Um, there was a case I argued called Armor Against Indianapolis about uh, sort of taxation by local authorities. What happened in this case briefly, I'm sorry, I'm going on too long, but what happened briefly in this case is that the, the city imposed an uh, assessment for sewer improvements and they gave people the option of paying up front or paying over time. Most of the people said we'll pay over time. About 30 people paid up front. And then one year later, the city said, ah, you know, we don't need these people who are paying in installments to pay anymore. Uh, we'll forgive all of the rest of their payments, but we're going to keep all the money for the 30 people who paid up front. Um, that didn't sit so well with some people. Challenge went all the way to the Supreme Court. There was an argument in the case, and the way that it sort of looked from the argument, it was that the liberal justices, I was defending the city and saying, you know, this is unfair. But as Justice Thomas might say, not everything that's unfair is unconstitutional. Um, so I was arguing defending the city and the liberal justices seemed to be with me and the conservative justices who were speaking and asking questions uh, seemed to be very much not with me. Um, and so the report from the press coming out of this case was that the city was going to lose, my client was going to lose. And I read every story with a smile because I knew that Justice Thomas had a very distinct jurisprudence in this area. He had had a separate concurrence in an opinion 20 years later called Nordlinger against Hahn, which nobody remembered except me because I was involved in the case. And so I pretty much knew that the justice had written an opinion that said that the principal case the other side was relying on was bad law and should be overruled. So I knew I had a fifth vote, and it turned out in the end I had a fifth vote, and the press sort of missed that in covering the case, precisely because Justice Thomas wasn't sharing with everybody his distinct sort of jurisprudence on the question. So the only thing, third point, is this has all changed now. Um, with the change in the telephonic format and now the new format, um, Justice Thomas has uh, participated in virtually every argument over the last couple of terms. 
He's asked questions in all nine cases this term with the new format. He asked questions in virtually uh, every case in the telephonic uh, format. I think starting with, with, with Lisa maybe in, the, in, in, in your case, which I think was the first argued in the telephonic format. And what was awesome about it is everything he ever said about explaining why he didn't ask more questions was sort of borne out in the questions that he asked. Um, he wasn't asking questions just to ask questions in the telephonic format. He got to go early, so he wasn't asking questions that others had asked. And it really was wonderful to get to explore with him uh, some of the distinctive aspects of his jurisprudence um, that that questioning sort of uh, conveyed and evoked. And I think from the perspective of Supreme Court advocates, as we were watching the court move from the telephonic format back to this kind of new hybrid the one thing we were all hoping, I think everybody's anxious to get back in the courtroom, but the one thing that we were all hoping is that Justice Thomas would continue to ask questions at the same kind of clip that he had over the telephone. Uh, and so far that's borne out, and I think the bar is much richer for that. That's great. Thank you, Paul. And I want to follow up more in the questions with your reference to his distinct jurisprudence, because I think that's great and a, and a wonderful description. But first, we get to turn to Lisa. And, and thank you, Professor, and thank you, my generals. Uh, I assume I am here for the perennial Sesame Street question of which one of these things is not like the other. Uh, here's the answer. I am the token substantive due process believer on this panel. <laughs> I nonetheless feel very much a part of this group because we all share such a great admiration uh, of Justice Thomas and love of arguing and practicing before him. I also want to start with the experience of arguing before Justice Thomas. I am fairly confident that Justice Thomas laughs at me during my arguments. <laughs> I would like to think that at least on some of these occasions he was laughing with me. Regardless, knowing that he was listening intently and working through the case as I spoke, always was a big confidence booster for me, and it made me feel like oral argument can make a difference. And the current renaissance of Justice Thomas at oral argument has been nothing short of a game changer. Advocates are now just giddy. In fact, the last time advocates were this excited was in 1918, when Daniel Webster had just finished a four-hour oratory before the court, leaving Chief Justice Marshall in tears. <laughs> The second thing I want to say about briefing cases before Justice Thomas uh, is I've had the privilege of working extremely closely with four uh, uh, Clarence Thomas clerks, Sarah Harris, Robert Leiter, Matt Nicholson, and Matt Rice. And their loyalty and love for their justice, who they call the boss, speaks volumes. But being surrounded by Thomas clerks has also influenced how I practice law. Particularly because of Sarah, I have been forced to the point of possible Eighth Amendment violations to approach the law with a nod to something she has called originalism. Every time I ask Sarah to explain what this means, she tells me to come back when I've read the Heritage Guide to the Constitution. <laughs> In the meantime, I, am, I know that I am not to conflate state sovereign immunity with 11th Amendment immunity and that Blackstone is apparently a preeminent originalist source, not just type, a type of grill. So thank you, Justice Thomas, for making me learn about 19th century school's common law authority to assault students for sassing their teachers. This has been quite the conversation starter on my socially distant cocktail party circuit. More seriously, thank you for making advocates go back to first principles, as well as to making us think outside the box and making us feel welcome and heard at argument and for writing opinions that give each side a fair hearing. You make the court an originalist place. And even better, you have made it a more civil place. That's really great. Thank you so much, Lisa. 
I was making fun of you. I just to the whole totally conservatives, just in case there's any. Totally. Fine. Okay. We can take it. Great job. So I, it, uh, it's a real joy to be here today. Uh, all the other three up here are all not just friends, but have been mentors. And I get to talk about somebody who has maybe been uh, the biggest mentor of all uh, the justice I clerked for. And I just I want to tell uh, a little story, which will seem silly, but uh, I'll never have another opportunity other than this panel to tell the story. So the very first case I argued in the court, it's a case none of you have ever heard of. It's almost as obscure as Nordlinger. It's a case called Eisenstein on the False Claims Act. And in the SG's office, by long tradition, your first argument is, is either a clear win or a clear loss. And I was pretty sure this was a clear win. I thought we had you know, pretty good arguments. I, I felt pretty good about it. And at a clerk lunch for the argument, the justice pulled me off to the side and he said, buddy, I've been working with my clerks for the first time in years. I'm going to ask you a question. And it's the hardest question in your case. And when I ask you a question, you're going to be able to hear a pin drop in that courtroom. So I'm, I'm incredibly like, what, what is he cooked up? I mean, we're, we're right. We're clearly right. Uh, and so I get, I get to the argument and, uh, I were the side we're supporting, uh, unfortunately the argument does its best to snatch defeat from the jaws of victory. So things are not going fairly well and it's actually turning out to be a pretty rocky argument. And he leans forward about five minutes in and, uh, hits, it clears his, throat and hits the microphone in front of him like he's going to ask a question and literally every one of the other justices just stops you can hear it in the audio there's nothing and i stop what i'm saying because i think he's going to ask a question and he sits there just looking at me for a minute and then he breaks out in a big grin and leans back in his chair <laughs> because he totally threw me off so I'm like, okay, I, I try to resume the argument, whatever, but it doesn't, yeah, like I say, it doesn't go very well. And, uh, and the clerks of my term were having lunch with them about a month, month later. And Judge Packold, who's here, was, was, was there. And at the end of the lunch, the other clerks walk out and he kind of pulls me back and he goes, Jeff, look, I'm not going to tell you anything about what happened, but I know you're pretty competitive. And y this isn't about wins and losses, how you did. So no matter how it comes out, I just want you to, like, keep your chin up. I'm very proud of the job that, that you're doing over there. So I'm like, oh, no. <laughs> I lost. And so a couple weeks later, the, the decision comes out, uh, and it's surely enough. It's 9-0, and it's written by Justice Thomas, and we win. <laughs> and 10 minutes later, my cell phone rings, and I hear his booming voice, and he goes, I got you so good. <laughs> You should have seen the look on your face. You were lower than a snake's belly. <laughs> and on the one, it's a very silly story. But, you know, here's what I would say. In the same way that uh, he, the stories are legion of the way that he knows his clerks and he knows the people who work in the building and he takes time to actually focus on, converse with the people he meets from all walks of life. And that's a genuine thing. It's not a put on. It's the same way with advocates. I mean, I, Noel and Paul and Lisa may not have seen it, but I saw it as a clerk. He, if he were here now, he knows what cases they argued. He knows who's had a good day. He knows who's had a bad day. Um, and even beyond just the advocates themselves, he has engaged in the cases. And what we're finally hearing now at argument are the same sorts of questions that you used to bat back and forth with us as clerks. And sure, it's been frustrating as an advocate not to be able to speak to what might be on his mind, but it was also frustrating as a clerk 
this narrative that because he wasn't participating in argument, he wasn't engaged with it. And it, it is it simply wasn't true. He was very engaged with the cases and he talked to the clerks about all sorts of questions. But for reasons we can get into on the panel, if people want, he for a long time did not want to participate in in uh, in argument for reasons that had nothing to do with his grasp of the cases. And I so I I, for one, always wanted to see a little more of that to dispel that narrative as you know, the last panel said he's not somebody who's ever cared about what people thought of him. So the last thing he was going to do was start participating because that narrative was out there. But now that there have been changes in the format, I think it's great that he's participating and everybody is getting to see what, uh, what you know, those of us who were lucky enough to clerk for him got to see. Jeff, that's great. Thank you so much for sharing the anecdote. I actually had not heard that. And I think not only does it show how well Justice Thomas knows his clerks, but also that he's darn mischievous, which is another really fun, fun thing about him. So, Paul, I want to pick up on a theme that Paul mentioned in his comments about Justice Thomas's distinct jurisprudence and see if each of you would talk a little bit about I mean, how would you define that? Is it distinct because it's maybe we think of it as mostly conservative, but sometimes it reaches a different bottom line? Um, is it because he's more uniquely originalist than others? So so how would you define that? And then as an advocate, I know we said for many years, you know, he may not have asked questions, but obviously a lot of advocacy is also your written briefs. And so in what way did you in prepping for oral argument or maybe more even in brief writing find that you were influenced in having to speak to that distinct jurisprudence? I don't know if anybody wants to lead us off. I'll start out with your... Well, Paul gave us an already gave us a great story, so I'm, I guess I'm asking for a second one if you have it. But. No, well, I mean, you know, look, I'll, I'll sort of kick it off the discussion, which is to say that, you know, Justice Thomas clearly had this distinct jurisprudence. And the way I would think of it is, you know, I mean, Justice Scalia, you know, I, th I think at times described himself as a faint-hearted uh, originalist, and I don't think anybody would describe Justice Thomas that way. Um, and so he was the justice on the court most willing to go to first principles. And, of course, now, you know, he's been on the court for three decades. And so he's had a lot of opportunities to apply first principles. And in some areas of the law, he's sort of done because the first principles gave him a clear answer. Um, you know, Lisa joked about the substantive due process clause, but think about sort of excessive punitive damages. I mean, you know, there's, there's, if you have a case where you're defending a big corporation that got whacked with a substantial punitive damages award, and you're arguing that it's constitutionally excessive, you're not going to spend a lot of time trying to get Justice Thomas's vote because he's already written a number of opinions making clear that substantive due process is, in his view, an oxymoron. And that's true when it comes to social issues, but it's also true when it comes to bailing out big corporations that just got whacked by a jury um, in a practice that, for good or ill, has been around since the framing. So as you're approaching a case, you know, you now have the benefit of somebody with a very clear jurisprudence. And I always think about the job of a Supreme Court advocate as getting to five for your client. And Justice Thomas would sometimes provide a very distinct route. Um, sometimes it was Justice Thomas and Justice Scalia who together would provide a distinct route to get to two votes. But two votes gets you an awesome dissent. Um, which is not what most clients are looking for. So your job was to sort of build there from two to three to four to five. 
Um, and as you said, like, you know, at, at oral argument, when the justice was, you know, not participating as often, he wasn't the focal point of preparing for oral argument the way that, you know, Justice Scalia might have been or Justice Kennedy or whoever you perceived as having the critical vote. Um, but in the brief writing process, it was very much, you know, you could you would often have like, you know, a sub B in the brief that was all about, you know, squarely taking care of getting Justice Thomas's vote. In some ways, it could be a shorter section uh, because, you know, there wasn't a lot of balancing going on. There were clear answers in the Constitution based on the text. And, you know, and often there was a prior concurring or dissenting opinion that laid out the view and you embraced that as part of your position, but maybe not the sum total of your position because you did need to, to get to five. Um, and, and I'll just add, you know, there are areas particularly where his distinct jurisprudence wasn't as kind of cut and dried in the sense that it provided a different way of looking at the problem, but not absolutely the answer. I think those are the cases where you sort of most miss the chance to engage with him because, you know, you might have had an argument that, okay, uh, you know, I had an argument in the telephonic format and uh, there was a question of Article Three standing and Justice Thomas in a number of cases, including his separate writing in Spokio, has embraced a certain way of thinking about those issues. And I can't say I was successful because I wasn't. Um, but I really enjoyed and, and treasured the opportunity to try to convince him that even under his very distinct view of Article Three in this context, uh, my client still had a good argument. And, and, and those are the contexts where I think, you know, it, like, like I said, if, if his jurisprudence gave you a clear answer, then the fact that you didn't get the chance to have him violently agree with you. Um, was, you know, was less of a, of an opportunity cost. But if you thought there was a way to really kind of bring him around on his distinct jurisprudence, that that's, that's the place where maybe you, you, you felt like you missed out on something. Thanks, Paul. And ju ju just to build out on that a little bit, uh, what Justice Thomas, along with Justice Scalia, built out what was a set of neutral principles that aren't left or right, I don't think. They often lead to conservative result, results, but they don't always lead to conservative results. And part of that just is the background law against which they're acting. And what I've always found interesting was that um, the, the worst criticism that I think the critics could lodge at Justices Thomas and Scalia in terms of their jurisprudence is you're just as bad as we are. You know what they what they basically argue is you claim to have this neutral theory, but it's not in fact neutral, and you're really just uh, using it to to disguise votes that favor your own political preferences. And so, two responses: one is really all then they're saying is that you're just doing the same thing we are, and that's not that powerful of a criticism. If you're just saying all oh, you're just doing the same thing we are by voting your own political preferences. But two, it's just manifestly not true. I think the punitive damages issue is one of the best examples, but it's not the only example. You also have Justice Thomas uh, voting to hold that you know the federal marijuana laws are essentially unconstitutional under the Commerce Clause. I can guarantee you that Justice – I can't guarantee you because I don't know, but I suspect that Justice Thomas is not a big fan of the free flow of marijuana throughout our, 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 our states. But nonetheless, he's got a very clear understanding of what the Commerce Clause is and that's unconstitutional. The other great example is Justice Scalia's vote uh, to uh, strike down a law that banned the burning of the American flag, what he often characterizes as one of the toughest votes he ever took. But when you do have that set of neutral principles, you know sometimes it leads to conservative results, sometimes it leads to liberal results. Um, Justice Scalia uh, 
often had a practice, and it wasn't invariable, but he often had a practice of keeping within his chambers what was sometimes referred to as a counter clerk. It was a, 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 a law clerk who was uh, more of more liberal persuasion. And people often misunderstood what the role of the counter clerk was. The role of the counter clerk wasn't to try to convince Justice Scalia that originalism was wrong, that textualism was wrong. That was a fool's errand. The role of the counter clerk was to hold Justice Scalia accountable to his beliefs. I think Justice Scalia, like Justice Thomas, is wise enough to recognize that given that we're all human, you often do have a tendency to try to see what you want in the text or the history. And the reason that you have a counter clerk available is to make sure that you're not doing that and to push back when you're doing that. Justice Thomas, I think, uh, less uh, less than just about anybody, he didn't really need a counter clerk because Justice Thomas is, it was always so single-mindedly focused on the text and in the original understanding of the statute. But I think it just sort of underscores how uh, we're not just as bad as they are. Uh, I'm not saying that we don't ever make mistakes. I'm not saying that conservatives, conservative jurists don't ever, you know, uh, let their views shade into their decisions, but they try not to. And they've adopted a theory of interpretation that allows them to be held accountable if they end up doing that. Uh, I think that that's Justice Thomas's greatest contribution is pushing hard for that kind of neutral theory that should lead to uh, predictable results in lots of cases, not all of them, but lots of cases without regard to what your own personal political predilections are. Justice Thomas used to say that he didn't have a counter clerk because he was happy to fight over a dime, but not a dollar. And the fighting over the dime was our job as clerks. Like we were supposed to flesh out how you were supposed to get there under general principles. But he wasn't going to spend his time fighting over like whether tax was important or history was important. And and Raish, the, the marijuana case that Noel talked about was my term. And I don't think I'm giving anything away to say I, I didn't get the sense that he had a great deal of sympathy for two people growing marijuana on their back porch. But at the end of the day, he didn't think that you could just pick up intrastate incidents of something as part of some larger federal regulatory scheme. Obviously, Justice Scalia was on the other side of that. Kelo, same thing. You know, Some of the other conservatives dissented in Kelo under the court's cases. He wrote a lone dissent to say, no, this, I'm looking at the Constitution. It says public use. It doesn't say anything about public purpose. I don't know where we got this stuff, but I, I'm, not, I'm not doing it anymore. And, you know, in some areas, you might think, well, that didn't influence the court that much. But, you know, there are strains of Kelo in Cedar Point uh, from this past term and takings. You look at his concurrence in Prince where, you know, a lone concurrence back in the 90s say, well, you know, this Second Amendment, it may protect a personal right. We haven't looked at this thing since Miller in 1939. We should take a look at that. Um, I think Paul might have an interest in that uh, in that question this this term. I mean, you know, the racial preferences and now, you know, the Harvard uh, cases is up at the court. Um, uh, you know, um, anonymous speech, campaign finance, right? I mean, he was one of the first ones back in the mid-90s and Colorado Republican won to start attacking the campaign finance laws. And ultimately, Justice Scalia and others came or, you know, joined him in that. But in a lot of these things, um, he was, as Noel says, sort of trying to figure it out by first principles. And he was sometimes uh, the first voice to get there. And we've now seen the law move in that direction. And I think just in the last probably five or 10 years, he started to get his due for the influence that he's had on the court. Yeah, I was just going to pick up on, on something Jeff said. Um, 
Justice Thomas, in a lot of ways, uh, proves that everything that I think about the law is wrong. Uh, as Paul knows uh, quite well, I'm a big believer in that the law doesn't drive anything. It's the facts, and they're just voting on you know, who they want to win. And Justice Thomas gives me a run for my money <laughs> because he's got such a uh, distinctive uh, view. But I, I think I'll fight back a little bit on the panel. A lot of what we're talking about um, although in your favor, I know um, preemption's another one where he yeah, goes, uh, yeah. and I guess Apprendi is another one. But um, I don't. I think I might have only lost maybe one case of his votes. I I always have found him more unpredictable than most people, I, and it maybe is a function of the type of cases I argue. I'm not arguing uh, the big sexy cases, and in the SG's office, and even now, uh, I know Chris Landau is floating around here somewhere. He wrote in. Um, uh, a case we did, Hughes Aircraft, an ERISA case. He's written in a lot of statutory construction cases, I argued. And so I, I always approached him as just a gettable vote on any issue that I was arguing um, and never found him predictable one way or the other, which is why I thought it was like he's always struck me as somebody very fair and as somebody that was always listening. Um, and I, I mean, I think that that's it because I can't, obviously he's had a huge influence. I couldn't agree more with Jeff. I think where he was out there by himself, just like with Justice Scalia, he's aged well over time, much to my chagrin. <laughs> well, I mean, that's great. Thank you, Lisa. So Jeff, if I could circle back to you for a second, because you as his former clerk and then we're in government practice and during, you know, the Obama administration as well as the Trump. And so with his distinct jurisprudence, I mean, what would you do as a government lawyer, particularly during the Obama administration years? Did you find that you were trying to think creatively about how to get his vote or touch base with his perspective when surely you were arguing for positions that he wouldn't naturally? I mean, I, sure, the experience was a little different as between those two administrations in terms of trying to get his vote. But uh, but I think I'm sort of with Paul and Lisa on this one. There were some areas where you knew either you had his vote or he was a lost cause. And there were a lot of areas. Preemption is a great example where, you know, he was gettable. Uh, you know, some of the standing stuff in Spokio, he's gone off in a totally different direction that sort of helps a set of plaintiffs who, you know, you might not otherwise expect. And so I think they're, you know, the sentencing guidelines, Apprendi, some of the Crim Pro stuff has been a great example. Um, you know, I argued a, a case when I was an assistant on a question of criminal procedure and the other side dumped a bunch of sort of founding era evidence in the brief. I didn't think that it had anything at all to do with the relevant question, but it ended up like, you know, Justices Scalia and Thomas went different directions at the end of the day in in, in the case. Um, and so I do think that it it is... I think not just Justice Thomas, but Justices Scalia and Thomas together have changed the way that the government approaches cases. You read a brief from the SG's office 30 years ago and you look at one now, it's far more uh, textual and historically oriented. And that's across administrations because, as Paul says, you have to count to five votes. I mean, I thought it was remarkable in one of the early cases that was in the office under Noel, we, it was argued. And Justice Gorsuch gave our office a very hard time while you know Noel's sitting there uh, for citing legislative history in the brief. Not leading with it or just having a little section sort of saying for those of you who care about it. And Justice Gorsuch, you know, sort of said this is remarkable to see legislative history in a brief for the government. <laughs> and Noel and I were kind of looking at each other like it's it's actually not remarkable. Some of you care about it. Some of you some of you don't. But I, that is sort of a sign of the times that that question, though I thought it was a, a little strong, is is uh, is sort of on the table nowadays in a way that it never would have been 20 or 30 years ago. So, yes, you know, we Bristow fellows spent 
spend a lot of time now researching like founding era evidence if that's even arguably relevant to the question because it's got to be in there somewhere. That's great. And we've talked, I mean, you all mentioned a number of areas actually where over the years, as Justice Thomas wrote or had kind of an idiosyncratic approach, maybe the courts thinking about an issue has changed or they're taking on new cases like Second Amendment. What about moving kind of the Overton window in terms of shifting, maybe it's the same position that he shares, but making it a little bit broader and more conservative. So one case that comes to mind, for example, Lucia, where maybe there was a question about the appointments clause, how's it going to be argued? And so Justice Thomas taking an originalist more extreme approach. Does that kind of separate writing impact, you think, where the majority lands or shift it or free up other justices who are more middle of the road to stake a position that's a little bit more conservative because he's going to be holding people's feet to the fire with a more pure view? I mean, I'll I'll, I'll take a first crack at that. I, I'd say it, it, it goes much further than just what's going on in the Supreme Court. It goes down to the lower courts, too. Because you've got a lot of uh, lower court judges who, as a result of the persuasive writings of Justices Scalia and Thomas, take an originalist and textualist approach. And there are a lot of cases that get to the Court of Appeals where you don't have a Supreme Court precedent directly on point, And you've got to convince these justices on the Court of Appeals to, to go with you. Um, I had that exactly when I argued the Noel Canning case, which involved President Obama's recess appointments powers. And when we got in, we started out in the courts of appeals, and frankly, every court of appeals that had addressed the issue one way or another had kind of rejected the the correct answer under originalism. So, you know, our initial tack was to say, look, even if you take all of these cases as they are, we're still right because uh, our case is different than all of those in a way that's meaningful. But we also made sure that we had within that uh, and a, a, a very solid originalist argument because it, because uh, when you're dealing with conservative court of appeals judges, you often have to first convince them that you're right as an original matter because of Justices Thomas and Scalia. And once you've convinced them that you're right as an original matter, then you may have some flexibility to get them to the right result using different types of reasoning that may reflect some of the other case law that's less originalist in approach. But what it all comes back to is that because of the influence that Justices Thomas's, Justices Thomas and Scalia have had on the law, you need to be prepared to make those originalist and textualist arguments from day one in your case, not just when you get to the Supreme Court, but there are many judges across the country where that's critical uh, in order to get their votes. And I know we're supposed to be talking about him sort of as advocates, but there's just no ignoring that he's got a generation now of former law clerks who are on the bench. I mean, they're all on panels today and they're out in the audience, circuit and district court judges who, you know, long after Justice Thomas leaves the court are still going to care about this way of interpreting the law. And so I just as a litigant, there's just no denying that uh, that you have to deal with a set of arguments that 20 or 25 years ago was not taken, uh, was not put front and center in the way it is now. Yeah, I, I mean, I wasn't really joking on my originalism. I don't I have no clue what it means. I don't really get it. But I do hire a lot of Thomas clerks and encourage them all to apply so I can uh, properly brief this. But it is a huge influence on our briefs because um, I'm told it's important. <laughs> but I think it, generally speaking, <laughs> and including lower court briefs, uh, it, it, Jeff could not be more right, no matter where it is, it's definitely the approach we take. But I think just generally speaking of the court and what makes it such a wonderful institution is when you do have somebody like uh, Justice Thomas and almost all of them to the extent that they have their own sort of strong views, it keeps everyone honest. It makes everyone better. 
because there's somebody who's going to who's going to write. And it's really hard to ignore a a, a loud voice and a strong voice. So it it sharpens everybody on the court. Um, And obviously it's made a huge difference. I mean, over time. So I just if some Jeff, you can explain this to me at some point. I just don't get it. But, you know, (laughs) I'm learning. And, and and I just sort of add two points um, to to this discussion. One is I, I think that it is probably true that Justice Thomas, by particularly being willing to stake out not just the originalist position, but an originalist position that doesn't really give a fig about stare decisis and is just trying to get it right. Um, and in in a case where you know that the center of the court does give a fig about stare decisis, and so your principal argument is that even under the court's jurisprudence, you win. Um, It's got to help to have some of the justices that are trying, you know, that you're trying to get them to come your way, even under the existing law. It's got to help that you got somebody there who's just clear as day saying, look, under the Constitution as written, forget about how we've interpreted it for 200 years, but under the Constitution as written, this is an easy case. That's got to have a dynamic effect on the other justices. But in the same breath, I would say, and I mean, you know, people who clerk for the justice should, should, you know, have a better view of this than me, I suppose. Um, but I did, when I was clerking for Justice Scalia, wander down the hall a few times and <laughs> heard some stories in the, uh, in, in the Thomas chambers. Um, so so I, I, think I, I think I have this right. He wasn't doing it to be tactical. I don't know that he really has a tactical bone in his body, at least in his professional capacity. I mean, so it's not like he was doing this in some sort of kind of, you know, double bank shot way of trying to move the court. He was just trying to get it right. That's what he cared about. Um, just get it right, and then everything else will take care of itself. No, I think that's exactly right. I mean, as clerks, we definitely were aware he was getting a lot less visitors and lobbyists, like as the term went on, than perhaps was happening sometimes with other, other, other chambers along the way. So, I mean, what do you all see? I'd be interested in your predictions for the futures, because uh, one of the panelists this morning pointed out when asked a, qu- a great question of, um, by Jan Crawford about what's the bottom line of the justice's legacy, and this panelist said, well, you know, we've got to keep in mind that it's continuing. He's been there 30 years, but he's young relatively, right? He's 73. He could be there another 10. We now have perhaps probably a majority originalist court, although members who um, believe in stare decisis. I mean, do you think that we are now going to enter a period, like a decade of seeing actually his originalist views come even to greater fruition, or are we just going to continue to sort of incrementally move forward the next 10 years? is this the beginning of a new era, even of more influence? What do you think, Jeff Wall? I don't know if I. I mean, I look. I don't think we'll see some sort of watershed change overnight. We've seen the new dynamic as the justices have come on. He'll continue to be influential, but you know, he'll often be staking out positions to the right for which he won't be able to get five votes, even if he can on the ultimate result. Um, but I, you know, I mean, I, I think uh, legacy cases, I think the Harvard case is a potential legacy case for him. If the court takes that and discards racial preferences and higher education, I think that's, that will be kind of part of his uh, legacy at the court and the way that I think, you know, picking up on Prince and Heller was a large part of Justice Scalia's legacy at the court. So I, I don't, um, I don't know. I think for both Justice Scalia and Thomas, right. It, it, um, 
he would always say, I'm not worried about my legacy. When you start worrying about like what the narrative is about you, you stop doing your job. I'm just deciding cases. I'm going to say what I think. I'm going to put it out there. People can vote for it or they can not. They can come along or they can not. And history will deliver whatever verdict it will. So, you know, will we see over the next decade, like, you know, him as a power center on the court? I'm sort of skeptical with the court we have now that we will see that. But I do think that uh, he has had a growing influence over time. That will continue to be true. And there are a handful of really big cases in the next couple of years where I think depending on how those cases go, they could be legacy type cases for him. But I, I just don't, um, I can tell you that the last one to care would be he. It's just not the way he thinks about it. That's true. We, we might care though, to the extent we think he yeah. has something to add to the law. So. Well, I, I'd add that I think that he's at the point now where he is, he is in, entitled to be given the majority opinion in some major cases, uh, both by virtue of the service that he's put in, the principle he's, in, he's advanced, and because we now have a court where he can write a principled uh, decision that is likely to garner five votes, much like uh, Justice Scalia was able to keep five on board for a very originalist interpretation in the Heller case, it's even going to be easier to keep five on board for some major originalist cases. So I, I think that may be where we see his um, influence uh, increase just a tick because I think he's been extraordinarily influential already. I think he's going to get uh, more majority opinions in more big cases. So we'll see what used to be concurrences being translated into into majorities. Yeah. Go ahead. So I, was, well, I was just going to say I 110 percent agree with, with everything Jeff said. I would just say I think this may have been another Jeff's point. He's obviously going to have a massive legacy because everyone he, who's ever clerked for him is a judge. <laughs> <laughs> and and I'm going to agree with everything Noel said, just so he doesn't feel um, left out here. Um, and and I, and I actually want to amplify one of the points that that Noel made because because of his seniority now, he is in a position to not just get the assignment in some big cases, but he's in a position to make the assignment in any case that Justice Thomas, uh, rather any case that the Chief Justice joins with the liberals. I mean, he gets to decide in that context, if it's 5-4 that way, he gets to decide whether he wants to write it himself, whether he wants to send it over to Justice Alito or Justice Gorsuch or Justice Kavanaugh or Justice Barrett. So that's, you know, he's been on the court 30 years and I'm, I'm one of the, his clerks probably knows what he's assigned, like maybe three opinions or something. I mean, he hasn't had the opportunity to be the assigning justice in very many cases. And I think that will change over the next decade and that will be part of his legacy. And then just the only other thing to amplify is, um, you know, he's been on the court 30 years. This is amazing. That's, you know, that's right up there. Again, his clerks probably know where that ranks on the all-time justices, but we're getting, you know, he's like Aaron Rodgers. He's yeah. passing like somebody every kind of week. Um, <laughs> there's a gratuitous Packer reference. Um, and, uh, and, and yet, like, you know, we're going to be back here in 10 years. We might be back here in 20 years. Um, we might not all be here, but he will be. Uh, I don't have any doubt about it. And so the potential of the legacy of that length of service, I, I think is, you know, it's, it's almost hard to fathom. It'll be, it will be, uh, it will be unprecedented. Yeah. I was just going to say, Paul just explained why Justice Breyer is still on the court. So thank you, Paul. He likes, <laughs> no, th no, that's awesome. Yeah, it is. It's, it's awesome. And that's a good, good context. Although, I mean, I, I, I am, would be curious actually 
with your thoughts strategically as to whether we think that the you know the chief justice who tends to take a little bit more of a middle of the road approach will actually sometimes have his strategy be influenced by Justice Thomas's opinion writing role. So if we just think about perhaps the case that might be most on folks' mind around Washington this winter, Dobbs. Let's say that there are five justices for majority view to uphold Mississippi's, the Constitution of Mississippi's law, and it would fall to Justice Thomas to assign. I mean, in that circumstance, would the concern that he would have such a purist approach drive the chief, if he weren't already, to the majority to frame it away? Or might we see that happening in other cases, like a Second Amendment case, religious liberty? No one wants to touch that one, but so I will. Um, <laughs> Great. Uh, I think the the abortion case is a little tricky for obvious reasons, and the other ones aren't. Okay. I just I just think that that case because of uh, there's a sense that you know this is the public versus the court kind of thing, and mm-hmm. you know all the they're obviously very sensitive to all the criticism. So who knows? I mean, I just think that all nine of them are acutely aware and uh, for better or worse, um, all of it's being directed at that, that the abortion case and not so much the, the other cases. But they're, they're, they're clearly going to be you know, having an interesting conference. But do you think that one's much more of a lightning rod even than the Second Amendment? I mean, would Justice Thomas be permitted to write or assign the majority in the Second Amendment case? Why not? Look, well, I, I think, think, it's, I think it's quite I, I think it's a very distinct possibility that Justice Thomas would get assigned the majority in the Second Amendment case, even if the chief were in it, much like they assigned Justice Scalia the majority in the Heller case, um, because there's a way uh, there's a way to decide that case. And Paul can speak to it much better than I can since he's arguing it. But there's a way to decide that case that is almost on all fours with Heller. We, uh, so so I think you could very well get Justice Thomas there on your original question. Look, I think that um, it will weigh on the chief justice uh, uh, whether or not he want. If, if there are five votes to uphold the law, um, it will weigh on his mind. Does he want to have the ability to assign it? Does he want the ability to write it himself, to try to write it uh, in a way that is uh, more in line with what he thinks would be best for the long-term uh, institutional interests of the court? Will it ultimately be decisive in his vote? No, but I think it's obviously going to weigh on his mind in deciding whether how he votes in order to maintain control of who writes the majority opinion. Um, before we move on from this, because we did talk about this, so thank you all very much for unpacking that. But we talked about the Second Amendment case, so I want to give just Paul an opportunity. What, Paul, it, what would you envision a strong Justice Thomas majority opinion in the Second Amendment case looking like? Um, <laughs> I, brief, I, I was going to say, it would look a lot like the, the briefs that, that we filed in the case. Um, but, you know, and, and well, that tell is. Tell the audience what that is. That is a facetious answer okay. and a serious answer because, you know, this, I mean, you know, here, here's like a perfect example of a case where, you know, you, you both sides really are writing this brief to speak to uh, the jurisprudence of Justice Thomas. And, you know, one of the things I will say, you know, I've been very privileged to be involved in a number of Second Amendment cases. And one of the reasons it's such a privilege is it is kind of like a natural experiment in living in Justice Thomas's world. Because we're we're kind of unburdened 
by a bunch of decisions decided in the 60s and 70s when nobody really cared about text or history or tradition. You know, the, 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 it's like a time capsule. You know, thanks, thanks to the Miller case. You don't hear that very often at the Heritage Foundation. But thanks to the Miller case, um, you know, Justice Douglas never touched the Second Amendment. And so as a result, you know, you don't have this dynamic where Justice Thomas is dealing with text, history, and tradition, and the rest of the court is trying to figure out whether they need to overrule, you know, some, you know, atextual decision from 1967. And so everybody's playing, you know, the, 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 the text, history, and tradition game. And it's, it's what makes it so fun. And if you look at the briefs in this case, uh, both sides' briefs don't look like other briefs in other cases. I mean, people are like engaging deeply on how it was that, you know, Knight's case in 1670, whatever, was reported in the English reports and whether that was an accurate report of the facts of that case and how the two-year difference between Knight's case and the promulgation of the English Bill of Rights uh, that included a right to keep and bear arms, how all that is, you know, how the, all that to understand that and whether the surety laws in the early republic support, you know, the challengers or the state. It's beautiful. Um, but it's not like it's not like other cases. Um, it's 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 a reflection, though, of what kind of the world would be like um, if everybody were deciding the cases that way, because in a typical brief on even on an important constitutional question. Um, you're engaging in all of that, but you're also wrestling with some precedents. Um, and, you know, chances are if it's an area where the court was plugging away um, consistently in the 60s and 70s, Justice Thomas would probably part company with some of those cases. But that's what makes it fun. And, and that's why I do think it's it, it's it's not just a, a fun answer. It's probably a true answer that hopefully uh, an opinion would 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 look a lot like our briefs because the briefs really do engage in the materials that he cares very deeply about. And even the government's brief, right? Even the government's brief tries to say, oh, you look at text and history, it gives us a lot of room in this space for the, the, the category of longstanding regulations is a lot larger than anybody would have thought. And I mean, I'm not sure that Paul would have envisioned that kind of a gray brief in a Second Amendment case 10, 15 years ago. I mean, it's, it gets pretty remarkable to see that from the SG's office. No, I think that's great, and that's true, and it's certainly the case uh, it, that the briefs in that case are focused more on history. As an advocate, though, do you find that more challenging or frustrating when you know you're coming in and you've done this work and you think you you've got the historical answer, and then the other side is not challenging the assumption, but basically suggesting that you've just gotten that evidence wrong? So is that harder than if they were just going to go with their living constitutional approach? Well, look, it's, you know, it's challenging in the sense that we're all trained as lawyers, not as historians. And, you know, you read these briefs and you realize that, you know, history can be debated and people on history faculties, you know, know that too. And they have, you know, revisionist history and, and the rest. But, you know, in, in, I still think you got a better chance to get to the actual right answer if those are the terms of the debate. Yeah. And, and keep in mind, you know, the terms of the debate aren't just history and tradition. They start with text. Um, and, you know, I'm biased, but I think we have some pretty Clear. strong text on our side in that in particular case. I mean, this just seems to me like one where at least my experience as a practicing lawyer has not tracked academia, right? I mean, there's all kinds of arguments in academia about 
the indeterminacy of originalism and all the rest. I've briefed cases on the purposes of statutes and regulations, and I've briefed ones on original history, and boy, the latter felt way more determinate to me, going back and forth. It was easier to get traction and to actually figure out who had the better accounting, whereas every other case where I've argued about purpose, I always sort of walked away thinking, I had a story to tell, and the other side had a story to tell, and which story you buy is pretty heavily influenced by, uh, you know, sort of what you care about out there in the world. So I, I mean, is it difficult? Sure. And it's incredibly hard to stand up in 10 or 30 minutes and try to go back and forth on, you know, the right meaning of the Knights case. But, uh, but it always felt to me like it was a more determinate exercise than, uh, than, you know, some of the other arguments. Yeah, I'll just say, I mean, somebody who, who loves storytelling, uh, no, arguing about history is not fun. Um, but the one historical case I argued involving the state of Oklahoma, I mean, the, the deciding justice didn't necessarily care about history. So, I mean, four of them did, but it was all a history brief. In the end, all I wanted to talk about was the story of today, even though you're briefing the story of yesterday, of 200 years back, but it I still think the. I mean, I can't help but the justices think about today. Yeah, to the strength of the strength of originalism, textualism isn't that it answers every question. There are still lots of hard questions, but what it does is it makes a heck of a lot of questions easy, and then it defines the terms of the debate for the remain for the remaining questions. So you are at least arguing within uh, within a set of defined materials, and some answers are clearly off the table. In the way that if you're just uh, going with a, a living, breathing uh, constitution, doesn't seem like anything is ever off the table. Yeah, and if, and if I can just add one sort of detail at the at the risk of you know you know indulging you all in my argument oh, this preparation, is great. I love it. Um, but you know, I, I think you really can see that when you, when you're debating history, that it does even if it's still debatable, especially if you remember why we care about history the answers start to emerge pretty quickly. Like in this case, you know, the other side comes up with a couple of obscure British barristers as kind of their principal authorities. And, you know, without, you know, denigrating those otherwise obscure individuals, like the reason we care about history is because it informs the original public meaning of the constitutional text. And when you have on one side all of these people that were well known to the framers and you know are referenced in the federalist papers and on the other side you have a couple of obscure british barristers yeah the the history's debatable but it's a pretty one-sided debate and I, I think that's why I think at least some of us that have had the privilege to have some of these cases where the whole court is engaging on the history it probably does feel like you can get to really a totally persuasive answer in a way that's a little more definitive than, you know, if we're if if we're in the realm of what would have co what was Congress trying to accomplish here? Yeah. Um, if that's the question. No, that's great. That's awesome. So we have about 10 to 15 minutes and I want to open it up and give folks a chance to ask questions of four star advocates who are clearly well versed in Supreme Court precedent. So we have one on this side. Do we have the mics? Thank you. Hi, um, how you doing? My question is for Ms. Blatt. So um, you, you know, the panel has discussed at length uh, Justice uh, Thomas's great um, impact over the course of his 30 years. 
and you yourself have expressed great admiration for him, um, but you don't uh, subtly have hinted that you're not a huge fan of originalism. I don't know if I was catching that. I'm not that a correctly. fan. I just don't understand it. <laughs> okay. Um, so so my, my question, and you, you, you know, my question is, you know, the, you, you pointed out that many of the justices, former clerks, are now judges. Do you think that that uh, significant, um, you know, the, the originalist attitude, the fact that it's out there in significant droves, do you think that's a good thing? Well, let me just, so defense of my uh, cynical view of the world. I mean, the Fourth Amendment, like we've been talking about history for a long time, uh, back in the days when there were crazy liberals running the court. But it, it, I still thought we were all talking about what did the justices want their suitcases searched. <laughs> and now we're talking about, you know, cell phones and, and GPSs, and we're debating history. So it all seems a little silly to me um, when I think that they are voting on, do you want your cell phone search? But we're going to spend 60 pages on history. So I feel like there's a disconnect, but it's kind of interesting. And, you know, the school, the school speech case, which I think this would prove uh, Sarah Harris right. I mean, we had dueling historical briefs. Uh, one by uh, someone named Will Consovoy and another by an Alito clerk, um, Mike McGinley. And, you know, I actually read all that stuff and I loved it. It was super fun. And it was all written for Justice Thomas. And Justice Barrett gets up there and goes, I don't, I didn't, you know, I, I didn't buy your history stuff. So let's talk about, you know, parents. Okay. So I, it, I still hold to my view that in the end, a lot of law, I, Paul's completely right on the Second Amendment. It's just that that ship has sailed. It's all going to be dictated by history. But there's a lot of law out there other than um, than the Second Amendment and something on substitute process. I mean, now this now we're in just to, to, to la la land. I mean, this is silliness. There wasn't, you know, there's not going to be a lot of history. I, I haven't read the abortion briefs, but I don't think there's a lot of briefing on history. It's like, okay, it's pretty much a right that, that Justice Blackman made up, got some votes for, and now there's a question about whether, you know, how much we want to put up with it. Some of us like it and some of us don't. We have Nicole Garnett over here. Sorry, I'm not supposed to touch things, sorry. I live in Indiana where we're allowed to touch microphones. Um, so uh, <laughs> I have a... I sort of want to. I want to ask. Maybe I'm directing this question at Noel, but it's really for Jen and Jeff. Which is, you know, this interesting observation that now the justice has the signing power. He's a, he's a senior justice. He could get majorities. Maybe in the gun case, Paul. Um, I taught a class on originalism in our last our last uh, class. We read the briefs and we talked to the students about who had the better argument. It was it was really fun. Um, but when I think about that case and others, I wonder whether Justice Thomas's purest approach to this, like his excavation through all the layers of bad law approach to it just doesn't suit itself to major or um, majority opinions like that he just even in the gun case he can't do it because he won't compromise and cut corners to get votes it's just not in his nature so he it, it's just that kind of originalism which i believe to mostly be true is just better suited for a concurrence or even a, a dissent I'll start out and then I'll turn it over to Paul. But but to me, uh, if there is a type of case that is well suited to a straight down the middle originalist opinion, 
it's the gun case, the right to carry case, just like I thought Heller was for Justice Scalia uh, on the right to possess case, because you're on an open playing field and you can just say, look, there, there clearly is a right to carry a firearm based on text and history, if that's what he thinks. And New York has essentially deprived almost all law-abiding citizens of carrying that right. So I don't have to get into a lot of details of what the contours of the right are, because if it exists, this law is clearly unconstitutional. It seems easy to, for me at least, to envision a, a simple and straight down the middle textual argument or originalist argument. Originalist blockbuster opinions and the majorities to be broader than the gun case. So I just, I, I just think I wonder if he's he's got it in him because he he's just not going to say what he doesn't. He's not going to hold his tongue in this case or or another case. Yeah. Well, so the Scalia clerks among us would say the same thing about Arapos. And yet, you know, he, I mean, and he lost plenty of majority opinions over the years because he wouldn't compromise. And I don't think he ever lost a moment's sleep over that. But he also kept uh, majorities together, not because he compromised, but just because he was right. I mean, so, you know, take a case like, you know, Crawford against Washington about the Confrontation Clause. I think I've heard the justice say that that was one of his favorite opinions um, ever. And, you know, that was, I think, what, seven justices? You know, a couple of them have peeled off since. But um, uh, that was like seven justices. So I think there will be um, enough opinions to, uh, you know, have there be some, some, some great majority opinions written by Justice Thomas, either because he's been assigned the opinion by the chief or because he had the assignment authority. I guess the interesting question, and we don't have enough data yet because Justice Thomas has had very few assignments, and it's really the people who clerked for Justice Thomas who would have the better insight into this. You know, I said before, I don't think he has a tactical bone in terms of the way he writes writes opinions. I don't know whether he'll have a tactical sense when he assigns the opinion. If he gets a case and he's got the assignment authority, but he knows he's got, you know, a great argument for two or three justices, whether, you know, especially if he thinks he's got a great argument for two, would he decide, you know, this isn't one for me to keep. I'll assign it to somebody who can, you know, at least write a plurality of three and then I'll join that because that just looks a little cleaner. I, I don't know whether he'll do that or not, but that's that's certainly going to be uh, something that if there are more of those cases, we'll get a better insight. Into. So just about this bit about him not being very tactical, uh, Justice, you know, all the liberals love him. I mean, Breyer just came out and said the most amazing thing. And anyone who's watched as many arguments as we have, have seen them. The two of them are the cutest couple, I think, out there. <laughs> I mean, it's, And I've been watching him for now since 1996. I've never seen two people laugh. And I'm not sure Justice Ginsburg loved all of her colleagues, and she just adored him because he's so nice. So he may not be very tactical, but obviously his colleagues love him, and he's uh, so I don't know. Well, well, it could be that being principled is actually attractive. Yeah. Maybe. If I can just pick up, maybe Jeff will have modifications. But as far as tactical, I mean, he obviously thinks and has the capacity to be quite tactical. I mean, he's the one coming actually out of heading an executive branch agency, I think has a great strategic management sense and chooses not to approach his majority opinion or his writing opinions that way. I do think that there are times, if we're talking about tactics, that actually one bit of influence he's had that we haven't talked about because it'd be behind the scenes is sometimes starting or gearing up to do a separate writing to hold people's feet to the fire. And then all of a sudden people 
maybe that separate writing is not what everybody would idealize. So somehow that argument gets gets put in the majority opinion or the majority opinion gets peeled back or there's a shift because otherwise, you know, there's going to be a stronger calling it like what it is, opinion written by Justice Thomas. So in that sense, there's definitely, I think, tactics, but always only if it's still holding forth the, the right uh, point. And so to Nicole's question, I mean, I certainly think um, – Justice Thomas, as you all are saying, could write majority opinions that hold a majority on the right bottom line, even the breadth of the decision that other people will join. And he doesn't necessarily, I don't think, always feel the need to put every single argument maybe supporting his view. I think where the where the um, tension might come, Nicole, is when we're talking about cases where to really get the right outcome, he might want to say expressly, and such and such precedent needs to be overruled rather than coming up with a cutesy way to distinguish it. And there, I, it just seems to me, I mean, I wish there were maybe more justices willing to, to think about doing that if it was necessary in a given case. But, you know, not all advocates ask for overruling. So there are some people who are coming in, framing a case in a way where I think he very well could write a very strong majority opinion and not have significant um, tension with his uh, joining colleagues. Jeff, do you have anything else to add? I, I think I largely agree. I mean, I, I don't know that I think his originalism, Nicole, isn't suited to a majority opinion. I think it's just going to kind of depend on the area. In some, he's going to be able to pull four along with him in a more originalist direction, and in other areas, he's not going to be able to. I think it's more um, his personality that I sort of worry about than the substance, right? I mean, if one of the other justices really wants to write in a given case, I think he would almost certainly allow them to write in a case because he doesn't have the ego. He doesn't doesn't need to be his name uh, behind it. And he doesn't have a whole lot of interest in kind of going around and lobbying and politicking back and forth to try to get to five through, you know, the way you say things in an opinion. And it's not something he's spent a lot of time doing. So I don't know. I mean, I would love it if he wrote a couple of, you know, major majorities. But I mean, and Noel's certainly right about the gun case. I, I do think that that's one that uh, that he would be really well suited to. But, you know, outside of that, will we see a spate of that? I, I, I don't um, I don't know. I'm just not and I don't know that that's so much his methodology is. I'm just not sure that that's his personality is the assigning justice, that he's going to want to assign it to uh, to himself if he thinks that that you know, somebody else may be better positioned, maybe methodologically better positioned to count to five, but also just maybe more interested in trying to do that math. We have time for one more question. I thought that was a really interesting question and a follow on from it. Who do you think, if we're talking about Justice Thomas's legacy, who do you think of the conservative bloc is the most jurisprudentially um, similar to Justice Thomas? And then also sort of from a temperament perspective, from a matter of principle, someone who's really willing to peel back the layers and look at history and take an originalist approach without regard to precedent or without regard to um, sticking to stare decisis as much as, uh, as some others would be? I don't, I don't think any of them are. Uh, I think that Barrett may turn out to be the closest to Justice Thomas. But I don't think any of the other conservators really are the type of consistent, uh, uh, consistent textualist originalist that Justice Thomas has, has developed. Maybe they will turn out. Maybe they'll further develop into that as their careers progress. But right now, I don't really see somebody who is who is the next Justice Thomas in that regard. Anybody have a different view? I mean, 
I think they, they I think I, I'm, I'm with Noel. I think in certain areas, I mean, in administrative law, you'll see Justice Gorsuch, I think, be very similar to Justice Thomas. They're both extremely skeptical of administrative agencies in action. That's been the biggest change in Justice Thomas's jurisprudence in the last 20, 25 years. Um, you know, he, he and Justice Scalia were the foremost defenders of Chevron an hour back in the day um, and, and no longer. So, um, and as Noel says, it's a little too early to tell about Justices Kavanaugh and Barrett and well, where they, they will come down. But I'm not, uh, I think I, I, I'm, I'm with Noel on this one, that across the board, um, I'm not sure that we have evidence to suggest so far that any of them uh, is, is uh, going to be um, a perfect wingman or wingwoman. I mean, methodologically, I think with looking at originalism, that's certainly right. I mean, I do think Justice Alito has shown sort of signs or willingness sometimes to go further perhaps or revisit, I mean, maybe not further an originalist, but sort of in terms of a more breadth of an opinion, perhaps, like even his writing in California versus Texas. I don't know that maybe it's, to me seems more of like a, at least I'm going to stand for the position, even if it's not popular, right? And a sort of a, be able to be a little bit more confrontational style, perhaps. Um, so maybe on the outcome, he is picking up some Thomas threads. I would have said Justice Gorsuch, but I know everybody who thinks that, you know, Gorsuch got some one, one decision wrong. He got one wrong, and therefore that's it for him. But uh, I would have said Gorsuch. All right. Well, that's that's great. So thank, so thank you all very much for the panelists, very much for joining us and closing out the day. And thanks to everybody for, for joining us for this great discussion today of Justice Thomas's legacy. Um, and tonight, uh, live stream, and I believe C-SPAN is also going to be covering a very special event with Justice Thomas himself and a number of former clerks and Leader McConnell giving uh, a keynote remarks about Justice Thomas and his 30 years on the court. So if you can tune into that on C-SPAN or the Gray Center's website, or heritage.org. Uh, we'll be reconvening that about 6.30 p.m. tonight. And we're very grateful for everybody's time joining us today. Um, and we look forward to 10, 20, 25 more years of Justice Thomas' service. Yes. Oh,